You are about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. It was an obscured skyline on the eve of October 4th, 1967, in the far eastern coastal community of Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia. When suddenly, the clouds were lit with an unearthly presence in the form of four glowing lights. Whatever these lights were, they appeared to be moving together beyond the shoreline of the harbor far below. And as witnesses took notice, turned themselves towards the Earth's horizon. These lights then descended into the chilly October waters in full sight of local residents, causing a panic and rescue operation to ensue. What the Coast Guard and other officials found baffled them, as the object that had made its presence known vanished under the surface, only to reappear on sonar miles away still traveling through the dark depths of the Atlantic waters. Official records of unidentified submerged objects exist all over the world, prompting many to speculate on the inexplicable speeds they travel, the shapes and strangeness of the craft, and so many other elements of their existence. What exactly they are, where they come from, and ultimately where they go, once they disappear from our sights into the lightless, pressure-crushing depths of Earth's waters. Join us on Into the Portal for a deep dive into more of the inexplicable USO phenomena that bring the mysteries of our world's oceans to the forefront of our imaginations. Other worlds, gateways, entire civilizations. What lies beneath the unexplored depths just beyond our grasp. Get ready to dive, only on Into the Portal. Hello, I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And welcome back into the portal, everybody. Yeah, what's up, everyone? Welcome back. Episode two, unofficial part two of our USO and alien base series. And yes. I'm air quoting here. I wonder if anyone's noticed anything strange in the waters nearby their surroundings. <laughs> I hope so. I hope we've uh, I've been paying listening. more attention, that's for sure. Hell yeah. We live by Rift Lake, so again, we're going to be going into some interesting geological routes and yeah. uh, twists and turns for you guys in this part two. Absolutely. Well, so before yeah. we do, let's recap, hey? Quick recap. Strap in. Dive helmets on, everybody. 
we're going to just do a quick run through of, uh, of part one, because we basically covered, you know, a handful of stories that were talking about these bizarre encounters with, with USOs, which has been the main focus of this episode, these different craft, if you will, and or entities in and of themselves, which is an idea we floated out there in part one, that are different shapes and sizes moving at crazy ridiculous speeds, both under the water and above the water, messing with the US Navy, messing with fishing vessels and civilian vessels. We don't know exactly what they are and where they're going, and that's the whole point of this. We're trying to trace <laughs> trace the trace the steps, even though it, is that the best way to phrase it? Trace the uh I don't know, the jet streams of the UFOs, I guess you might say. (laughs) Exactly. It's it's a topic of very high strangeness, I would say. Yeah. So on this part two, we have some really incredible things that we're going to go through. I'm really excited for this. Uh, We're going to be going through uh, a few different USO abduction accounts. So a little bit different than some of the stuff we talked about in part one, because I mean, for me, when I was looking into this, I'm thinking, okay, well, if we have some abduction stories, then maybe we have, you know, a location where this abduction took place, right? Where they were brought to, i.e. a base (laughs) of some kind, right? Absolutely bizarre. And there's some bizarre descriptions of structures involved in this. We also have some brand new theories that we definitely didn't mention in part one that have kind of come to light over the research in the past few weeks. But to kick things off, we wanted to give a little bit of time to a classic, an absolute classic Canadian case involving a mysterious UFO seemingly crashing or diving below the surface of the coastal shores of Nova Scotia. This is the infamous Shag Harbor incident, and we wanted to give a shout out to Ricardo, who is a patron uh, of ours, a supporter of ours, and, uh, and, and super active in the Facebook group. And he mentioned this to us. He's like, oh, guys, you didn't get into Shag Harbor. That's like one of the most iconic USO. And we had talked about it before on past episodes. It just, for some reason, didn't come up in in relation to, like, subduction zone research and some things like that that we talked about in part one. You're getting ahead of us, though, aren't you? So let's get into the story, the infamous Shag Harbor incident. Let's do it. And I will say thank you to Ricardo again there, just because he he had some really good points to make uh, just on the topic of UFOs in general in our uh, Facebook forum recently. And then, yeah, he... He did bring this one to our attention again, and I think we just kind of got overlooked because we actually did cover this in a past episode, and I will give a shout-out to the Double Density boys over there. Yeah. And I think it was in our Creepy Canada tour that we did with them, and that was a couple of years ago, so that's a long, seemingly a long time ago. It's, yeah. But arguably, this is one of the most prominent Canadian UFO sightings, and it's associated with water, so of course we need to touch on this for our... uh, our series, I guess, our mini series. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But again, this is indeed part of this, yeah, bizarre web we are looking at where UFOs become USOs as they are seen entering and exiting the coastal waters of Canada. Yeah. Of course, there's many that think this could have been a crash site. There are many that think that this could have been an intentional touchdown, and mm-hmm. uh, we'll get into all of the details here. But again, this is one of the most infamous, famous, I would say. Not infamous, famous. (laughs) It depends on, I mean, some people might have been pretty freaked out. They might think of it as as true. But it's something that in the last 40 years has brought this tiny fishing village of Nova Scotia on the world map, especially for ufologists and Mm -hmm. enthusiasts. But the night in question occurred on October 4th, 1967. And the beginnings of what would appear to be high strangeness of extraterrestrial origins appeared in the night sky over the harbor. 
So what was described by many witnesses as four blinking orange lights were seen to rocket towards Shag Harbor late that evening. But their behavior was even stranger than their sudden appearance in the night sky. Quote, the four bright lights flashed in sequence and tilted to a 45-degree angle as it descended rapidly towards the water surface. Upon impact, there was a bright flash and an explosive roar, <laughs> according to Mysteries of Canada blog here. Mm -hmm. But mysteriously, the lights didn't vanish below the surface, but instead appeared to float on top of the water. And this was reported by Barrington Municipality, quote, Witnesses at first thought they were watching a tragic airplane crash and quickly reported as much to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, which was located at Barrington Passage. Coincidentally, the RCMP constable Ron Pound had already witnessed the strange lights himself as he drove down Highway 3 en route to Shag Harbor. Pound felt he was seeing four lights all attached to one craft, he estimated it to be about 60 feet long. So we're right. dealing with something of immense size yeah. if it was one singular vehicle or craft, if you want to call it that. Right. But it's interesting, right? Because we've got a whole bunch of people seeing this. It's not one singular person or two people. This is police officers. This yeah. is just people that were local residents. And there was also the Coast Guard that gets involved. Right. Yes. All right. So what do you think so far, Andrew? I mean, shades of, again, like even a little bit of Clarenville is, a, is another UFO oh, yeah. case that we've covered. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons why this got passed over in part one as well. Because I think in the back of my mind, I was thinking Clarenville UFO, mm. where again, RCMP witnessing it and extremely bizarre. But no, this has, I mean, it has all the elements here and we haven't even do uh, dove beneath the waves yet. So yes, yes. So this is going to develop into a lot more of an interesting story here. So um, according to Pound, him, along with two other officers, descended on the sh scene shortly after the impact. And they found that they were standing on the shoreline and they saw that the UFO was still floating on the water. It was located approximately a half mile from the shore and was glowing a pale yellow. It also seemed to be leaving this trail of dense yellow foam. <laughs> and this would stay on the water surface for a few hours before dissipating. Now, here, let me toss this out here before we continue, because I know you're going to get into the yellow foam here, but that comes back to some things we talked about in part one with the difference between something being like biological or that being like a fuel source that's leaking in the water. Is it like, mm -hmm. what? Which, which is it? Is it like a bioluminescent fuel source that's like organic of some kind? I love how it's phrased to like the impacts, like the UFO was still floating on the water, like definitively that's what it is. And I guess that is because if it's not definitively a plane, then it is a UFO. Something physically existing <laughs> that had descended from the we sky no idea to what the is. surface. Exactly. Yeah, it is definitely a UFO because no one knows what it is at this point. Okay, yellow but, foam, yellow foam. Yeah, so we have this yellow foam here. And it was reported by witnesses to smell sulfuric, which is interestingly another commonality in a lot of UFO sightings. But interestingly, by the time the Coast Guard had assembled a vessel to aid in the apparent crash site, the UFO had vanished 
below the surface of the water. The only thing that was left was this distinctive yellow foam, and it frothed and gave everyone a physical reminder of this amazing sight they had just witnessed. Mm. I wonder if anyone had the gall to grab like a jar and collect I some of this. I was just going to say the same thing, take a sample, right? You know, yeah, yeah. But of course, in a lot of these cases, the evidence either disappears or is never collected. To be fair, I mean, a response to something like that, I mean, you're not exactly, you don't have like field research equipment to like take samples. You're like Coast Guard. No, exactly. You literally have to use your water bottle or something. If but, that, yeah. <laughs> if anything, like, yeah. any kind of vessel. But interestingly, this is the weirdest part here. And this came from Constable Pound. He actually reported that the object had changed during its descent into the water surface so it had appeared to change shape and that in itself exhibited (laughs) properties of no known object that he was aware of at the time Mm -hmm. so this is something we can speculate on and we've seen this in other ufo cases most notably i'd probably say the charlie red star phenomena and that was where Charlie himself, as he was referred to by many locals, was found to be transitioning into many different forms. There was a triangular formation. There was almost like what was referred to as like a circus wheel light formation. There was orb formations. Right. There were so many. So that's interesting to me. Absolutely. Me too. I mean, that's where, again, it's the split between... Like we've meant, we mentioned the Akualele fireballs, yes. and those are seen as like more of like entities and spirit, spiritual beings they're more or ephemeral, something. But they're because they're less right, defined, right? It's, but then it's almost like, but they change shapes and sizes and stuff, and then it's like, damn, this is very similar in lots of ways, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can they change from that shape into something that appears to us? Like, is it literally just an illusion? Right. Anyway, so we're getting <laughs> totally. speculation here, but there's more to this story. So okay. So after the UFO had descended below the surface, there was nothing more that was found that night. The Coast Guard terminated their search at about 3 a.m. So it was, I think, roughly about a four to five hour ordeal. Somewhere within the three to five, I'd say, is roughly, because I think it occurred at roughly 11 a.m. or sorry, (laughs) p.m. So the police actually did, they conducted a check in conjunction with the Rescue Coordination Center of Halifax and NORAD radar, which is located in uh, Barakata, Nova Scotia. And there was no reports of any missing planes, either civilian or military. So there was nothing in the skies in that area that would explain the site that they had seen. Yeah. So the next day, the Rescue Coordination Center filed an official report with the Canadian Forces, and this was their headquarters down in Ottawa. So the report simply stated that something, quote-unquote, had fallen into the water in the harbor and that the object was of, quote, unknown origin. Interesting. But the story does not end there. No. And our USO connection is just getting started in this regard. Yes. Because the Shag Harbor UFO was reportedly picked up on sonar over 12 miles away, and this was days later. So it was traveling away from the crash site towards a government facility on the coastline. And this was reported by MUFON researcher Chris Stiles, who went to the location back in the early 90s and located many of the original witnesses, including the divers who secured the crash site and they did their own searching and didn't really find anything at that location. However, according to these witnesses, the object that dove into the waters of Shag Harbor 
um, quote, traveled underwater for about 25 miles to a place called Government Point, which was near a submarine detection base. So it says here that the object was spotted on sonar and that naval vessels actually positioned themselves over top of it. They monitored it for a couple of days and they actually were planning a salvage operation when, this is interesting, a second unidentified object joined the first. So there's no explanation for either of these. No. Common belief, quote, at the time was that the second craft had arrived to render aid to the first. Mm -hmm. There was also a report from the RCMP, which detailed an additional sighting that evening by one Captain Mercy of the ship J.B. Nickerson. And the report was dated uh, three days later to October 7th. But according to Captain Mercy, at about 9 p.m. that night on October 4th, he actually saw an object with three flashing red lights that hmm. appeared to be in the sky and then also appeared to be dancing along the water. And it was very interesting. He said the object was about 16 miles southeast of Sombre, which was where he was located. Right. He did say that the Navy at that time was doing a lot of practice in the area. However, he says here, at the same time, there were three other objects on the radar and they were about six miles from the first object. He says here he saw it disappear at about 11 p.m. So that roughly matches up with when the Shag Harbor UFO touched down into the waters. Mm. Mm -hmm. Curious indeed. Yeah, no, he goes on to say, while the object was on the water or close to the water, it had three real bright flashing red lights. All of the lights on it were red. So he's seeing red versus orange, which is interesting to me. Again. Wasn't the red lights the, uh, the from part one, the lady on the cruise ship? Weren't those lights red? No, they were blue. Were they blue? Her. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. He said he'd hmm. never seen anything like that before, but it sounds like this is the very same thing they're looking for off of the Barrington Passage. Right. So he, again, correlates it to this... A Shag Harbor incident. So, and yeah. he signed it himself. This was an official RCMP report. Love it. <laughs> I know. There's so many credible witnesses, and it's actually interesting because this incident has been commemorated by the Royal Mint. It has its own coin. Oh, yeah. And, and there was a stamp a, as well, I think. There was a stamp as well. Yeah. I love this. Um, one of the officials from the Mint said here, quote, the credibility of the witnesses is just amazing for this. And this was uh, project manager Krista Bruce. She says, we have witnesses from the military. We have pilots who are witnesses to this event, local RCMP officers and residents. So it's a great story to tell. It really is. It's it really is. And it, it lives on um, in Canadian memory. In, like you said, yeah, in the stamp form, in the Canadian coin, and of course, yeah. in a podcast such as this. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so, right? I really wanted to get my hands on the book uh, by Chris Stiles. He and I think another MUFON researcher co publish a book together sure there's well, also another one i found too that was just called the shag harbor incident and it was by a very racy looking <laughs> yeah some of the other some of the other yeah. titles they had in their uh, collection were, were interesting it was not things i would like to read <laughs> no but the reason that this case stands out so much definitely compared to the ones we talked about in in the first episode here is is the idea of you know, we're trying to trace where these things are coming and going. And you have this debate here, whether or not this was a potential, like a salvage or rescue. 
You know, like yes, some sort of yeah. a reconnaissance UFO of some kind mm-hmm. in that particular vicinity of Shag Harbor off in the Atlantic, off the coast, the East Coast, and had some sort of a mishap and then needed this second UFO, this second craft to assist it in some way. Where it ended up helping it get to in that sort of recovery, like, again, we don't we don't really know. All we have to work with here is, again, like, okay, well, we have another really prominent USO sighting at this particular location off the Atlantic. Okay, well, now we go US, now we go base hunting, right? I mean, like, <laughs> which is really difficult to do, which is what we keep coming back to time and time again because of the foreignness of the depths, right? And there's a few quotes that are going to come up here in a second that, again, just speak to that because it mm-hmm. is it is more difficult to reach the nooks and crannies and possible entrance ways, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, of the deep ocean than it is... In, in to, to send people to space, really. Oh, yeah. It's, no, totally. It's more complicated. You know, and, like, just, sorry, just to tie that up again, just the, the whole Shag Harbor thing. Like, yeah, like, a lot of the times what you see is the first half of the story, but you don't get the other half of the story, which was, I, I, I don't even think I finished saying that they, as, as the Navy was watching them, right, and they're positioned over top, so the report goes by Chris Stiles along with other researchers, they actually ended up basically just shooting off into the sky. So they were heading, it says here they were heading towards the Gulf of Maine, and basically they were (laughs) trying to get distance from these pursuing Navy ships, supposedly, when they actually surfaced and then rocketed off into the sky. Yeah. So that's crazy to me. So again, right, like, yeah, we can speculate on a lot of things with this. Was there a base located in the area that they were actually... But were they, like, meeting up there at a base, or what were they, like, was it an intentional crash? Yeah. Or, sorry, an intentional crash, that's a really, Well, I mean, like, you was know, it was there it, intentionally? Yeah, 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 exactly. Was there some specific purpose, or was this all just one big, exactly that, like, they lost Accident. control? Yeah. The the sulfuric, um, the sulfuric foam, that to me points to something that might have been physically wrong. It almost brings to right. mind like the Falcon Lake incident because I'm it pretty does. sure he had a similar smell come up. I'm not, I mean, he obviously didn't have the foam, but again, you don't have any water True. interacting with the actual craft. Ooh, that's interesting. So, so it's like, yeah, like whatever, whatever well, same substance is there. Yeah, it interacts with water. Here you get this weird yellow. Yellow yeah, it's substance. almost like yeah. the exhaust might right. turn into something that... Oh, I wish we had a sample. Someone had a sample of that. Right. Yeah, I so know, So frustrating. Right? It is very frustrating. But yeah, again, like this this is just a very fascinating. Chris Stiles, it seems as though he dug up a lot more that wasn't actually originally um, published or found in, in public records. So I would like to get a hold of his book. That would be quite interesting. We can come, we can circle reading. back and do a, a mm-hmm. follow up just focusing on, on Shag Harbor. Yeah. And, and, and fortunately for the witnesses, the plethora of witnesses, nobody was uh, scooped up and taken away because <laughs> these next few things we're going to talk about are bizarre to say the least. They're abduction cases that involve being taken beneath the waves, which is just something that mm-hmm. we don't usually get that distinction. You know, you get many, there's 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 a lot of different abduction stories and cases out there where it's way more specific on focusing of like the craft inside, you know, on a table or whatever. There's a million different things and then having different implants and yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. We're used to these types of abduction stories, right? The classic cases. And I'm reminded of like, you know, Betty and Barney Hill as like an iconic abduction story case, right? Which we haven't actually covered yet on the show, but I'm sure most of you out there listening to us know about that case. And if you don't, stay tuned because I think we might we we maybe cover it it maybe on Mm -hmm. Patreon. 
Funny enough, actually, there is a potential water connection to the Betty and Barney Hill case as well. Hmm. I'm not going to get into it, but there was... They, like the rest of the stories I'm about to get into, remembered a lot of, a lot of this through hypnosis therapy. And one of the stories uh, Betty actually mentions remembering going underwater. Oh. So we can... But but the, that that case is so rich on its own, we didn't want to just have that in there as a tiny little side, side throw in. So we'll, we'll do Betty and Barney Hill completely separately. But what's interesting with this is like, could any of these cases of possible abduction related to USOs lead us any closer to locations for an actual physical base of some kind? Like, could there be a mapping based on the accounts in some way? Let's find out. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one is uh, is a story that came from a young woman in the 1950s. And actually, she didn't come out with her account until years, like decades later, actually. And her name was Betty uh, Andresen Luca. And hmm, another Betty. Yeah, sound familiar, anybody, right? And immediately when I was looking at this, and it was just an article about underwater stuff, but the name sounded super familiar, and she's actually one of the most well-documented abduction cases in history. Hmm. And I and I was like, oh yeah, I remember seeing this in other research. Multiple books published about her memories of the events, and specifically the first one that kind of like brought her whole case to light was in 1967. She experienced an encounter with extraterrestrials in a classic abduction scenario. She became the subject of one of the very first sort of like official controversies over the, the, the subject of abduction and contact with extraterrestrials. And she actually answered one of the early ads placed by uh, J. Allen Hynek, who hmm. was looking for people who had thought they had been abducted to do uh, hypnosis therapy. Interesting. And, okay. um, and through this is how her amazing story was brought to light. And um, like I said, many different books published about her. And this one guy actually named Raymond Fowler in uh, 79, he wrote the first of a series of books discussing what actually became famously known as the Anderson Affair. Andreasen Affair? Or sorry, sorry. <laughs> so easy to say. <laughs> what became known as the Andreasen Affair. What a, what a weird name with the double S there. Eh? Yeah, you don't see that too often. But her story was essentially this, and before I get into the underwater stuff, before we dive beneath the waves, it was January 25th, 1967, in rural Massachusetts. The story goes that they were, she was in her home with her family when all the lights went out. Uh, this is when she was a little bit older. And uh, she was a mother at the time, so she's in her house with her seven children, Ooh-wee! and her two parents, who are all visiting, um, allegedly here, and they were all gathered in the kitchen, so all the lights go out. And this was obviously odd, but her, you know, nobody panicked. Her father looks out the back window, because they noticed a strange pink light in the backyard. He saw, not Betty, but her father saw a series of small, strange, human-like entities scurry across the property. You know, but I mean, this is, in this, this is, I mean, he's an older guy, I guess, and he just didn't really think too, too much of it. He thought hmm. maybe it'd be like just some, some kids or something, and then I guess the lights came back on. But it, none of this really came forward until, until the, she started having nightmares later in life, and then went through hypnosis therapy mm-hmm. because over the next few weeks after this, she was having these memories and flashes of humanoid creatures and this bizarre environment that she was in that was completely unlike her home in Michigan. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. But 
it wasn't until all the way until 77 that she actually sat down on a table or like on a, you know what I mean? Like laying down on the therapist bench, right? The chaise lounge. The chaise lounge for some <laughs> hypnosis sessions when this whole story starts to get pieced together a little bit more coherently. And it basically sort of, it, it plays out that soon after her father saw these creatures, all of the family was placed in the state of paralysis. And she remembered several small gray beans entering the house and addressed her telepathically. And they ended up, to, of course, in a classic fashion, taking her aboard some sort of a craft. She goes through a closed door and, and she's floating towards the towards the craft. She's being mm. levitated. It's almost like an out-of-body experience. Very much so. It's yeah. very much a sleep paralysis type, type experience, right? And that's, again, skeptics will talk about sleep paralysis as a, you know, because these memories through hypnosis is one thing and we can talk about that in a little bit, right? Yeah. It's interesting though to, to say sleep paralysis if they weren't asleep, like what time of day was this? I'm wondering, you know? Yeah. I mean, obviously it, people I, are up, like fathers And it will obviously, and if the, the lights window. are on, it's got to be like early evening, well, I'm true. assuming, yeah, right? Exactly. Like it's dark enough that you have to have the lights on, but you're <laughs> awake, like, you're still awake. <laughs> it's like everyone's asleep with the lights on. <laughs> Because that's not happening. No, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Or maybe she's just so tired from her seven kids that she's, like, sleepwalking. (laughs) She's, like, asleep. All of this is just because she is so sleep-deprived because she has seven kids. (laughs) Betty. That's my theory. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Sorry. No, 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 no. That's okay. I mean, lots of people would try to later discredit Betty, and I think us us making wisecracks about seven kids is, like, the least of the things she (laughs) she had to endure later on. But as she was working through this overall experience, she went, like I said, she would undergo various different sessions, treatments, if you will, mm-hmm. depending on your perspective of hypnosis, which revealed a whole slew of different memories of different events that were very similar to this, but extremely difficult to explain. So after a few more sessions, she remembered one in particular that was when she was a child, and she realized that this type of thing must have been happening to her for a long time. It wasn't just in her adult hmm. life. So in the 1950s, when she was a young girl, so clearly we were dealing with like a multiple time abductee here, at least as she claims, right? Right, Which is very typical. She says that in the 1950s, she remembered this, that she was in her home on a perfectly normal evening, as she would describe it, when she was taken away and presumably in the same fashion as the first one, where it's like, you know, kind of paralyzed, levitated, brought aboard a craft. But this time, when she was on, she claims that she remembered the whole journey speeding towards an you know undisclosed body of water she's in michigan so that's the east coast presumably the atlantic ocean no it could have been uh, lake michigan it could have been lake michigan there is some there is some strange structures in lake michigan as well actually well and also the great lakes triangle and they're extremely deep, and the Great Lakes Triangle. Wow, layers of rabbit holes that we're boom. throwing into this. Boom, boom, Just boom. Awesome, man. <laughs> right. So she's trapped. So she remembers all this. She remembers traveling towards the water at like hyperspeed, right? And was expecting a crash. So we get the same thing again. We talked about in part one. There is no impact. It's a sh- seamless entry into the water. Hmm. Um, these crafts are clearly meant to be entering water at extremely high speeds, right? Like they're designed for this. So slips beneath the waves, completely submerged, and continues down into the darkness. She doesn't really remember how long this was going on for, but this is where it gets super weird. So she's traveling for some time underwater, but then the craft enters this submerged tunnel system. And she only knows this because there was some sort of like like not bioluminescence, that actually comes up in the next story, but there, it was lit up somehow. 
it, she could Ooh. see that this tunnel system was composed of like it was it was clearly like a natural earth material but it had ice and icicles along the walls as she mentioned and that maybe that this was how it was lit up it was like refracting some sort of light that was brightly lit through these icicles well if you think about deep sea animals too a lot of them yeah like bioluminescence is a commonality between a lot of them so maybe maybe she was and light refraction right and and using the light in different ways from other creatures and stuff and just using whatever is at your disposal at great depths to see things i guess it's reminds me of avatar that like giant tree thing that was like bioluminescent that's totally what i'm mm-hmm. picturing but of course here we've got shades of like hollow earth and not only just classic hollow earth potential theory but like the monster verse godzilla oh yeah version of it where it's like tunnels and caverns underneath yeah like, you know pockets and, yes and less like, like agartha with like the sun in the middle type yeah of deal, but like more of like okay there's a weird secret there's a subterranean point. world that's not Exactly. It's not like right. there's like another sun on the inside of the earth exactly. or anything like that. So she remembers all this. She goes through this 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 tunnel with icicles on the walls, and eventually the craft finally reaches what was described as a massive underwater dome. So I'm picturing it as being clear. You know, so here we go. We're out of base, right? Mm-hmm. Like we've reached we've reached something. Of course, we have no friggin' clue where the location is, but in this description, she's at some sort of a facility where she was shown some things that she really didn't want to see. And this was the reason for her nightmares and what prompted the hypnosis. The Hmm. entities that brought her aboard, which we don't actually have a super vivid description of in this particular case, but there are other drawings that she did from her other memories of abduction. And they are very, you know, classic humanoid grays, I guess. I mean, we can get into, that's a separate debate. mm -hmm. We can talk about that later. But nevertheless, whatever these things were... They decided to show her a collection of humans, okay? <laughs> so people in some mm. sort of bizarre suspended animation within essentially like glass containers. I'm picturing like cryo-frozen, you know what I mean? You were in like some sort of goo. Yeah, and, and, it's, and she described that they were, there was hundreds of these people, and they were all dressed in different clothing from various different periods throughout history. It was like, she described it as, and this is why I loved it when I found this story, like a museum of time. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it was an exact order, but she said it was like, there was there was animals too, and it was, they were all encased and all laid out and like labeled in some sort of a weird, like it was like, she was terrified from this, is how she describes it. But I'm thinking like, is this some like, like a seed bank is like this is this is a weird race trying to like preserve all of human mm. history somehow Reminds in some of way like an anthropology museum very much so but mm-hmm. just in a little bit more slightly more sinister it's a little more morbid aesthetically it's like yeah here you got larry the caveman it's like where'd larry go oh i guess he just got abducted he's in the museum of time now like forever <laughs> right that's interesting like did she describe them as if they were moving or they were just like like just like didn't get that didn't get no. that they were moving i think they were just it wasn't like the the talking heads in futurama no in the jars it was i think it was just like as if they maybe they that were, would be freakier to me but here's these a, but here's specimens a, are alive still well, and they're like, like that's what i'm saying like cryo frozen what if they are samples throughout entire history they've got literally like every year yeah that whatever. almost goes into the idea of like um i think oz even was talking about some one of his recent episodes but he yeah, the idea of like we're just the pets of some sort of other race and that we're right. just a massive experiment. We're almost like someone's anthill, you know? Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. So which take, I think is possible. You take samples of the evolution be like, oh, this this sort of particular route or this particular subculture of, mm-hmm. of my anthill population, like, you know, did this. And so we like, you know, we have this particular collection that we're showcasing today. <laughs> Anyways, go on. So the, yeah, no, I mean, there, <laughs> go on. Well, I mean, where I'm heading to here is like, I mean, okay, great story. Yeah. Great story, Betty. She she did go on later to say some other crazy things. She was brought up to be particularly religious, as an example, and her hmm. faith kind of led her to say certain things where she thought that these beings were very much angelic, associated with Christ. Like a higher, you know, and yeah, people okay. and people use that against her. I I I I wouldn't. I don't because obviously that was her 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 way of viewing the world, right? That was her mm-hmm. understanding, her her upbringing, or what have you. And we don't. I don't. We don't have the other background on Betty in terms of like other things she believed before that. Like, did she just turn that way later? I don't know. Mm -hmm. But is any of this true, right? Could any of this at all be true? Why would they be showing someone this? But this seems to happen in abduction cases a lot where people are inexplicably shown things, Mm -hmm. almost in like a taunting sort of a way, like you just said, like if it is like the ant colony. Well, yeah, it does remind me of like the classic uh, villains monologue where they go ahead and tell the hero their exact plans for everything. And it's like you're sitting there watching it 10 minutes and you're like, why are you still going off about how great your plan is when you could have just finished the plan and killed the hero 10 minutes ago? (laughs) And instead, you're just raving about yourself. They got a monologue. Meanwhile, the hero's already concocted another plan that's going to, you know what I mean? Anyways. Sure, sure. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's, I, I totally agree with you, though, with the idea of, like, she's only viewing it through the lens through which she can rationalize and comprehend. And if you have something like that that's so inexplicable and you're obviously dealing with things that appear to be of a higher um, power than you, I yeah, guess. Well, a higher definitely. technology, like... Obviously, like, yeah, we've got um, elements of telepathy. Yeah. We've also got some sort of, like, yeah, like, I don't know if you'd want to call it interdimensional or just some sort of out-of-this-world mode of transport. Actually, I'm glad you brought up my favorite word, interdimensional, mm-hmm. just because going back to Shag Harbor and the sulfur smell, mm-hmm. I just wanted to, I mean, again, I'm making, I'm, they're vast leaps here I'm making, but it's like the smell of sulfurs, like, again, like, that just reminds me of, like, people's ideas of like you know whatever gateways to hell or like a portal to a place you don't want to go mm-hmm. or like when something happens or, or like when there's a transition in a haunted house or something you yeah. might get a smell like that type of thing right so it is it, associated it with those that, that idea of, yeah. of a transference transference exactly it almost reminds me of Coraline hey Where yeah have that like 3d crazy <laughs> that almost looked like bioluminescence hey that like crazy like portal thing <laughs> yeah. between the the other mother's world what and her world. What a creepy movie that was. I right? love that movie. It's, it's great. It's really nice. Count on Timber. It's really nice. Creepy. It's really interesting. It's to really watch. nice. It's so sweet. Just stolen <laughs> away well. fake family on another dimension. It's great. <laughs> Buns for eyes. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> That's what everyone wants. <laughs> okay, well, let's move on here to case two because obviously mm-hmm. with this, we're, we're thinking, okay, well, I mean, I kind of te- I teased you guys a little bit there because we're not necessarily closer to finding the base unle- other than the fact that it's like sh- this happened on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. But if exactly. We're, but so if we, we're, yeah. we're not that far away from Shag Harbor, technically. No. Who knows how fast these craft can travel, potentially. True. But yeah, that's... And you mentioned Lake Michigan as well. It's like, okay, well, 
further down at the end of this episode, you know, we're trying to maybe make some connections to like, have these things been here for forever, like for a long time? Is this like prehistory type stuff? There's really bizarre structure at the bottom of Lake Michigan. That's okay. like Stonehenge of Lake Michigan. And it's got some strange shapes to it oh, and stuff I've like heard that. Of that. Yeah. And it's just one of those things where it's like, well, you know, I mean, it, that, that seems like a perfect little marker for something that definitely would have had some serious significance long before anything should have been able to do that and it's obviously at the bottom of the lake anyway yeah i'm getting atlantean and whatever else with things like that like ancient. <laughs> what have you got for case two you're shuffling me along to case two here <laughs> well, i'm right. curious okay. i want to know it looks like we're going to florida so <laughs> yeah did you just discredit the whole story by no. saying that no it is in the first <laughs> sentence of my description here so i guess i was going to do it to myself anyway <laughs> no no people from florida they can they can have uh, accurate accounts as well Okay, second case. This was from 1979, and uh, a gentleman named uh, Filberto, uh, sorry, Filiberto uh, Cardenas. I don't know exact location of this. Uh, Hialeah, Florida, January 3rd of 1979. Hmm. There's a few different varying accounts of this one. In some, it's that he was just with his wife. Some that he was with his wife, and there might have been a couple other family members with him. But in any event, he, the purpose of them being out on the road that they drive in was that they were looking for a really specific butcher so they, they could get a full pig to do like a, 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 a full a roast. A luau. Mm. Which sounds amazing. I'm getting kind of hungry. Mm-hmm. So they drive off. And they're trying to find this pig for the roast. And this was supposed to be for the following weekend. So they had some time. There was no particular rush. And they were kind of leisurely uh, searching for some uh, for the, for a butcher that could supply this for them. But they had trouble finding one. And then at one point on their way back, they turned down into a section of road that they weren't used to in this area of, uh, of Hialeah, Florida. And uh, turned onto one road, didn't know exactly where they were. And then on this dark road, classic UFO trope comes to, comes into play. Because after a little bit of time here, their engine inexplicably shuts off, stops. Ooh, yeah, that is classic. X-Files-esque, right? Mm-hmm. You know, just driving, it just completely shuts off. The, the The electronics don't work. Everything doesn't work. They get out, they check the car, but it seems at this point, once they get out, they're like, there's, there's nothing wrong. There's no hose. It seems in perfect working order. The hood, there's no smoke, there's nothing. Everything should be fine. So they're on the side of the road for a few minutes. I love this so much. When they claim, Filiberto claims that they heard a really low hum in the distance, that as it started to get closer to them, it sounded like a swarm of bees. Hmm. Hmm. Then the car began to violently shake. And this is where, again, like just totally reminded me of X-Files. There was this uh, glow of red lights that just all of a sudden surrounded them in a flash. And it was so intense that the surrounding trees on the side of the road were lit up as well and all of them noted this later on cardernas then noticed like that it was coming from some sort of an object there was a disc-like craft that had moved overhead of them and the next thing he knew again classic there was some sort of a light that struck him and very much like betty he was pulled towards the craft supposedly his wife and the others in the car witnessed this happening as well Hmm. and they actually reported him missing because he was no longer there at the side of the road. Crazy. So he's got like tractor beamed into a craft. More or less. Mm-hmm. So he lost consciousness, but when he wakes up, he claims that he found himself sitting in, a, he was strapped into a seat of some kind in like a, in a space inside a craft, still paralyzed, couldn't move. But the room around him was shiny, as he remembers. And he was, like Betty, surrounded by humanoid beings, this time with helmets on. And curiously, like, 
this is a guy in Florida that clearly is Latin American, probably doesn't speak German, but mm-hmm. he he said that the language he could hear them speaking under the helmets sounded like German to Weird. him. Weird, okay. Which is strange. Which would be like harsh and hard enunciations. Yeah. Very different than the Latin ba- like the mm-hmm. Latin based language that he would be maybe used to, right? Or English even for that matter, right? So that's weird though, because it's not like these weird completely foreign sounds. It's a it sounds yeah. some like something like you familiar. Maybe heard at a restaurant or you heard somewhere. You know I wonder I mean? if that's just him trying to make an equivocation. You yeah. know, like, oh it sounded very gruff and sounded like something that I might have known, but Got not something by the Germans. Obviously something that's very foreign to him at the well, same clearly, time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't think he was abducted by the Germans. That doesn't make, make any sense. Are we in Argentina? Maybe there's... Oh, like... yeah, yeah. So there's a two-hour-long search, a little over that, actually, for this guy. And uh, eventually he was found, passed out on the side of the road, like dazed and confused. Wow. Uh, right mm-hmm. off the side of the highway, roughly so it... 10 miles away. Crazy. <laughs> so he didn't make it into the Museum of Time. He didn't make it into the Museum of Time. It was but, a fine enough specimen. Well... No, he no. That's true. I guess yeah. They didn't save him. They didn't keep him. Keep him. You think they could find a more famous person from 1979 to put in the museum <laughs> of time than Filiberto? I mean, no offense to Filiberto, right? I'm sure he's a fine gentleman for trying to find a pig for a luau. But anyway, <laughs> he underwent a series of medical tests, obviously, because he was literally found on the side of the road, ten miles away from his car. But nothing really came of this. And of course, after this event, he starts to have some mental health issues, Mm -hmm. some nightmares, problems that were difficult for the regular medical profession to diagnose. And so he ended up uh, seeking hypnotic regression therapy as well. And this was months after the event. So here we go again, through hypnotic regression, he would recall the events as follows. He was taken aboard the craft by a strange beam and that he was subjected to strange experiments by bizarre humanoid entities on board some sort of a disc-shaped craft. Hmm. He was then placed inside a smaller vehicle that appeared to be able to guide itself and completely self-pilot on its own, whether it was remote-controlled or literally like an, a, a, a biotech-type object, breaking the surface of the water and after an unknown, unspecified amount of time, once again, entering an underwater tunnel in the deep hmm. darkness of the ocean. And this tunnel, once again, had illumination along it. He didn't describe icicles like Betty, but he did describe some sort of like a bioluminescence like we see in deep water fish. Right, okay. So they then, they go through this tunnel and they pass into like a cavern. So not the dome like Betty describes, but sort of sounds kind of similar. And of course, it was dry. Hollow Earth people. Oh, okay. It was hmm. a uh, like a hangar of some kind, like a, like an aircraft hangar hmm. somewhere under the ocean. <laughs> oh, that that's bringing to mind the Malibu structure, <laughs> right? Now he wasn't shown a museum of time, but he was told things that I feel like are adjacent to that, that are similar in a sense. He was told things associated with time. So for whatever reason, these entities, when he was there, he was like telepathically told. Uh, like predictions. Uh, He was told about the 1980 election of Reagan. He was told about like the Gulf War and Saddam. He was told about the 1985 uh, earthquake in Mexico City, as he claimed, and various Hmm. other things. And then, you know, very vaguely in the return trip, 
somehow is then ends up on the side of the the side of the highway and remembers all of this through regression therapy. Hmm. And of course, neither of these people are really they're not profiting off of this. They're not doing whatever. It's just very unfortunate. So what do you make of this story? I have, I have a little bullet point list of some sort of recap similarities, but it's like, I mean, how yeah. crazy are these people, right? I mean, these, I know, are, these right? are really you, weird. You immediately go to, well, my mind at least, wonders as to, you know, their basic uh, psychological state and and their, uh, also again, their their status in life, you know, and a lot of um, psychologists and things point to it's it's almost a weird, oh, I wish I could remember all of the research. Because I remember when we did look into this again when we were studying UFO and abductions and stuff, and we, we did look into the psychology of it. And there are some common traits that are associated with um, people that do kind of come out with these stories. And a lot of the times they either, they are very akin to almost... Um, like victimizing like almost like uh, very similar to rape victims mm. um We've a lot of the time yeah We've um, that. yeah and sometimes too they do it's i can't remember the exact terminology but it's almost like the need to have something bigger in life happen to you you know what i mean sure like for so- him for example this is interesting the idea that he was shown prophecies prophecies make someone special right so if you think about it in that sense like you know this could have been but that's well, very I mean, how, but, but, but again it's, it's like, very decontextualized from the actual story right because supposedly his family witnessed him being taken so it's not as if it's just him saying yeah. this and and how many of these prophecies did he like nudge nudge wink wink to people he knew that could corroborate that he actually said hey you know what i'm pretty sure some some bad's gonna happen in 85 in mexico like, well, you know what I mean? Like, we're yeah. just reading it now after the fact. It's really <laughs> yeah. easy to say. I'm just but saying, if, these are my initial thoughts. Like, you know, I always think of, like, the psychological state of these people. Sure, which we have no reference to. So exactly. It, so it's, it's, it's hard. It's yeah. all conjecture. It really is. And I'm not saying that he's making this up. That's interesting, though. Let's break down the actual stories that they're saying here. Because the tunnels are probably the most interesting part. Like, the idea of whether it is interdimensional or strictly physical if they are being transported, because this is going to tie into one of the theories we kind of dug up in looking into some of, uh, yeah, like the inner earth sort of uh, geophysiology, I guess you could call it. Sure. Yeah. Um, this idea that could tunnels like this actually physically exist in the world. Yeah. And we'll get into that in a, in a, in a hot sack. That is this, that is the one curious similarity. Mm-hmm. It's like, I mean, what they, they definitely didn't know each other. That's for sure. Um, yes. The yes. tunnel being a... a, a, a and yeah. the, the, the illumination of it in itself. That is very interesting. Going Obviously, in, that can yeah. be highly symbolic too. You know what I mean? Like the, yeah. the, the journey through... A lot of the times people... Like I've even had dreams where I'm traveling through what appears to be like a light stream. You know what I mean? Like where you're... And it's almost as if it's like... Uh, it reminds me of that scene in Finding Nemo when he's going through the um, the current. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. and then he finds a spit out on the end kind of thing. And it's almost like... You know, that kind of thing. Right. But, uh, yeah, no, there are other similarities. Let's see here. The Well, there's the... The, the dome temp- or temple or yeah. whatever, the hangar type thing. A base of some kind, like uh, a structure, yeah. whatever, you know, is described as a dome in the first one, hangar. Mm-hmm. The idea to that me, it is concealed underneath the surface of water. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's all tying in. And then the references to time. They both have them. You know, I mean, and wh- wh- what's up with that? 
Yeah, you mean like our perception of linear time. So she was going back yeah. in time. He was going forward, supposedly. Well, I mean, and she only she she didn't even really say that she was only going back in time. She just described it as a museum of time. Okay. Like, you know, she would know she would only recognize the stuff that's old. Like here's a mm. clearly a medieval whatever. Like anything that would be in the potentially I in the future, so, right? she wouldn't Actually, she wouldn't recognize. Nor would she have the time to go through to see everything, potentially. True. Which is, unless Was it, it a guided tour? <laughs> yeah, hop on the golf cart. We're going to just drive around the, the whole circle of the Museum of Time. Mm-hmm. But again, I, very much like Betty, though, too, to your point of, like, are these people crazy? And, you know, like, we're giving the benefit of the doubt to Filiberto to some extent. Like, he did say in part of his his regression therapy that he noticed that there was symbols on the walls of this dry hangar that depicted serpents. And I'm like... Hmm. Okay, Godzilla is real, I guess, according to Filiberto. You know what I mean? Like that's literally like the monster verse. Yeah, in a sense, that's like, kind of weird. And he, sorry, this happened in what was the year for this? Seventy nine. Okay, so yeah. seventy nine. Yeah, interesting. Okay, and then Betty's was decades before that in the fifties, and then she reported it in the mid sixties or seventies. No, no, her, she actually reported it in one of her latest, uh, like one of her very later hypnotic, uh, and it was around the same time, like nineteen eighty something like that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, how, po- I mean, I guess Filiberto could have been inspired. Is he a, is he a UFO nut? We don't know. That's what ended up being used against um, Valentich for his yeah. alleged abduction, right? Oh, you're into UFOs, so you couldn't have been abducted by a UFO because you're just making this shit up. Oh, sorry, Valentich. No, it just reminded me of the Valentich story where it's like, you know, like he, he, he was a UFO nut. So he, like, that's what was used against him for, like, that story being, like, just a made-up story. You know what I mean? Well, Filiberto says he saw serpents on the walls. It's like, was Filiberto a, a, a UFO nut and just, like, a weird hollow earth nut? I don't know. Maybe. Right, yeah, just to clarify, yeah, so the Valentich, he was reporting right before he disappeared that he was seeing something that appeared to be a UFO. Mm-hmm. So, again, yeah, and people do... They, they did point to the fact that he was an amateur UFO enthusiast as ways to discredit him. So that is another commonality. But again, I'm not saying that by any means. And I'm No, I'm the sure, serpents on the wall. I'm walls, sure like, Mulder over here sitting across from me would say the same. Yeah, I, I, I well I have to, right? Otherwise what are we doing? We got <laughs> we need we need to uh we need we need entertain to, the uh the exceptional I do want to believe <laughs> the unusual. Obviously. <laughs> And on that note, we have some bizarre places to look at in our discussion of like the most likely locations of these possible bases or entrance points, as well as some brand new theories. But before we do, we got to pay the bills around here. So let's take a a tiny break for our sponsor, BetterHelp.com. It's okay to not feel okay. Seriously, whether it's stress, feeling depressed, relationship problems, or simply feeling held back. Like, there are roadblocks preventing you from being who you want to be. Everyone has something like this in their lives. But one thing's for sure, it's always better to talk to someone about it. And what better way than anywhere and anytime that's convenient for you? We want you guys to take advantage of the amazing services provided by BetterHelp.com. Professional, therapeutic, licensed counseling that's tailored specifically to you. It's quick and easy to get started, and it's vastly more affordable than traditional counseling. And there's even financial assistance for those who qualify too. This is a service designed to help you be a better you and take control of your mental health and of your ultimate goals. So take advantage of 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com portal. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash portal. And we're back. Okay. Well, before we dive into some of our theories and ideas about potentially some underwater locations that might be holding interdimensional or extraterrestrial bases of some (laughs) kind. Yes. We do have just one little bit of housekeeping. We actually just got a brand new producer on our Patreon community. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. So thank you to Kitsune. I hope I'm saying that correctly. Yeah, (laughs) Big welcome. Kitsune. That's kind of a unique name. It's pretty uh, sweet. Yeah, I'm really stoked to have him aboard. And uh, yeah, we actually just did our first ever ad-free release on Patreon of our regular feed episodes. Yeah. So we're going to keep that train rolling from here on out. Definitely. So as we grow and uh, gain more sponsors and things like that, you guys can always look forward to having an ad-free version of Into the Portal podcast available on our Patreon feeds for a dollar and up. Which is awesome. Which is great. And we're just kind of feeling like dummies for not putting it out there before. But (laughs) now it's there. So... Yeah. So thank you so much for joining <laughs> us as a producer. And uh, we, yeah, we just speechless. It, it helps so much. We've got an amazing crew on we Patreon do. there uh, helping us produce the show uh, and growing. in other tiers as well. So mm-hmm. it's really awesome. And I'm really excited for our next release that's coming up this week. We we're putting together, we're going to the far north of the Orkney Islands. Yes. And it's going to be um, a lot better than that really weird accent I just put on. So <laughs> That wasn't too bad of a I don't know a hybrid what Scottish what was that, slash yeah. Viking slash <laughs> Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan. <laughs> okay, you ready to dive into, uh, we keep using dive because it's a great pun, so just, let's just keep using let's it. Let's do it. Jump into some theories. I got my helmet. I'm Strap it on there. Got a fresh tank of oxygen. That's let's right. go. And mm-hmm. we can only go so deep with those things, and that is a, a, a topic that comes up here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's start with, with, I guess, sort of a recap, too, from part one with the sense that, like, you know, we mentioned some other underwater structures that we actually can pinpoint. The Malibu structure off of California was one that we mentioned that Mm. was interesting when it first came to light. You know, people seeing it on Google Earth, but is one of these classic examples of blown out of proportion geological feature. And Mm -hmm. I was reminded of a few other similar ones as well, like the Baltic Sea anomaly, which very much looks like the Millennium Falcon crashed at the bottom of the Baltic Sea, but is likely just a huge chunk of glacial rock that's been dragged across the bottom. But it does look very strange, right? Very strange, You know, in part one, I also mentioned Yanaguni Monument, Mm -hmm. not as a base, obviously, but as a possible marker of some sort of an ancient prehistory even that is linked to the water, you know, maybe Mm -hmm. even some sort of Atlantean type vibe associated with this stuff. But specifically with Shag Harbor, as far as like analyzing theories and stuff we've talked about so far, you know, it's not all that far from Michigan for a UFO, wink, wink, to uh, like the Betty, the Betty Andresen (laughs) story, right? So what's going on under the surface of the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Nova Scotia was one of my first questions, because it's like, if this wasn't a crash necessarily, and they were there specifically, I'm very curious how much research and how much like exploration had actually been done because we mentioned in part one and we've got more stats in the second like there's very little of the ocean that's actually been mapped you know searched at all mm-hmm. um, and it's over 70 percent of the earth's surface so think about that like we really haven't touched most of the earth 
And I found this particular article here about an operation done by the NOAA, which is the National Oceanographic Atmospheric Administration. And they conducted a series of projects and expeditions, and the overall purpose was to examine very poorly understood deep water um, locations off the coast of, uh, of Atlantic Canada, and specifically where there's this continental shelf that just plunges into extreme depths, where there was like totally new species of like deep sea sponges and different things like that. And this was a quote from um, the Ecology Action Center in Halifax in 2019 talking about the project. This is, it says, they said, quote, this is huge. The ocean covers 70% of the Earth's surface. Most of that is very deep and very offshore and very difficult to access. Mm-hmm. So the Deep Connections mission was to do, try to fill that gap with just that, to explore deep water canyons and uh, channels and all kinds of crazy stuff across the eastern seaboard of Canada and the U.S. So they're collecting data on marine life. They're looking at different geological features under the water and, you know, trying to identify like heritage sites too, like shipwrecks and things like that, which is Mm. pretty sweet. But of course, they haven't found any entrances to alien bases yet, right? (laughs) But probably haven't gone deep enough yet, right, everybody? Right? Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Uh, Nor has this particular expedition or project had any USO encounters like Shag Harbor, But at least this is a snapshot of what is going on off the coast in the Atlantic. And, you know, was it just a sheer coincidence and a rescue mission in the case of Shag Harbor, right? In the case of Shag Harbor, we had, you know, was it a submarine or was it ships that were over top of the initial one before? Navy vessels. Navy vessels, you know, waiting to maybe do something about it, like like hesitating maybe because they just obviously didn't know what they were maybe going to get into. They weren't as brash as like the Russian divers with the uh, Lake Baikal incident being like, <laughs> let's just grab our Scooby-Doo net and go down there and try to try to do something about it. <laughs> and I think the reason is because ultimately, like we said, 80% of the ocean remains unexplored. So where this thing actually came from and what you are actually facing and dealing with is pretty, you're, you're completely in the dark. Mm-hmm. And it's because it's so difficult to know. Only 7% of the oceans are actually designated as protected areas. So that's what they're working on with this project I was just talking about off the coast. Oh, yeah. Where there's this one particular canyon. But the reason for this, like I've said before, but I just wanted to reiterate because this this really is profound. That it is so, like, we're right here. We think we have dominion over the earth, but we have barely even seen anything beneath the water and the reason is because it's characterized by like zero visibility extreme temperatures like cold temperatures right and then of course the absolute crushing amounts of pressure in these depths which in some ways it's like i said it's easier to go to space than it is to the bottom of the ocean because of these varying different things Mm -hmm. rather than it being maybe like one specific i mean obviously it's not i'm i'm oversimplifying here and i do not work for nasa i'm not a physicist but like (laughs) you get the point right yes Mm -hmm. and so this would require if these things are coming from the great depths whether it's through a portal or physical spot it would require almost like a different type of life form Hmm. a very much a different type of biotechnology or some sort of a drastic adaptation of like us Mm -hmm. if we're talking prehistory this is an offshoot 
and yeah. Atlantean it, humanity like society in the depths, right? Sure, definitely. It's bringing to mind all sorts of ideas, even like the Voyage Under the Sea episodes we were binging a while ago oh, with yeah. their various races of undersea dwellers and things like that. The crab people yes. is one version of yeah. that. It even also just being less fantastical and less uh, <laughs> reverting to television references, the um, the discovery of those deep sea, oh, I, I can't remember, it wasn't an amoeba, it was some sort of bacteria or something that was able to thrive on those uh, thermal vents yeah. that were located deep, 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 and I'm... I'm don't quote me on this. I feel like it was in the Mariana Trench. It was somewhere in the deep sea. But they were surviving off of not oxygen. They were surviving off at a completely different source. Yes. Of um, of fuel, of like energy. gases, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's – it's just trying to bring into the conversation, I guess, the idea that you could have things maybe not even – based on carbon you know what i mean like what right. if like you you brought up the silicone walker from that x-files episode and th- yeah. that was something that was yeah. found in the depths of a volcano silicone based life form a rather silicone, than yeah. carbon based life form this is a great segue into this next section here because you've got some interesting things to talk about in terms of like a discovery in 2014 but it it plays off this idea of just like well if we don't yeah like alternate versions of life and then also in conjunction with that alternate timelines of how the earth was formed like that's what this next section is potentially about like where the our oceans came from and yada 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 yeah exactly if you're talking about yeah from the big bang to here kind of thing like all that but beyond all that this was just a very interesting find that again does speak to the idea of uh, water sources that we haven't necessarily (laughs) tapped into (laughs) but in 2014 there was a finding that would stun the world and essentially what it was was i'm not going to say a reservoir of water like we do say reservoir here but don't think of it as like like a an ocean a literal ocean but basically there is about um three times the amount of water of all of the world's oceans discovered deep inside the Earth's surface. Yeah. The composition of the Earth's surface. I'm not going to say... It's, it's not like you're finding tanks of water dispersed no. all throughout no. the... B- in between the upper and lower mantle in this what's known as a transition zone. But essentially, this water was discovered hidden inside a blue rock that's known as ringwoodite. Ringwoodite is extremely, extremely rare and uh, it only forms in, like I said, like this this transition zone. It needs right. a lot of uh, pressure and um, different uh, metamorphic processes happening to create it. So basically, this was found about 700 kilometers underneath the ground in the middle mantle. So this is the layer of hot rock that's basically between the upper and the lower mantles. It's also referred to, like I said, as a transition zone. Mm-hmm. So this kind of like amount of water that's theorized to be held in this particular layer of Earth's surface, or under the surface, I should say, kind of throws new light on where water exactly could have come from Mm -hmm. and how maybe potentially in the future we can harness that for ourselves, hey, as as the world's water resources continue to deplete. But it's interesting because uh, you put this note in here that some geologists think that water actually arrived in comets as they struck the planet. Yeah. But this new discovery actually supports an alternative idea that the oceans might have actually gradually, like, 
oozed out of the interior of early <laughs> Earth. Right. <laughs> so it's very interesting, and it makes us question how much we really know about Earth's uh, geologic processes. And the history, yeah, exactly. And the history of such, yes. And I actually found this other article from CBC, and it was, again, it was from a 2014 report that was led by the University of Alberta, and it was a geochemist by the name of Graham Pearson, who uh, kind of, he did an examination of this diamond mineral in which was found the ringwoodite. Right. So in my head, like, because we, this is actually featured on an Ancient Aliens episode, and the <laughs> yeah. way that they describe it basically makes you think that there is a massive continental shelf-like rock known as Ringwoodite, and within the rock, there's this huge ocean existing, but it's totally the opposite of the case. So basically, this was just, that was my interpretation, mm-hmm. and I was half listening, half doing other things at the time, just so you guys know. <laughs> but basically... She tunes out ancient aliens when it's uh, when that's playing, yeah. It's, I don't know, it's just... So it's ancient aliens, guys. It's ridiculous. Come on, come on. But anyways, okay. So basically, yeah, this mineral that they found, it was a diamond. It was literally they the equivalent equivalent worth of it was ten dollars. So yeah. it's not something that Crappy you'd want to put on your hand or on a piece of jewelry <laughs> or anything like that. But within this sample diamond, they found this like teeny tiny little piece of ringwoodite within which was encrusted water. So basically, this is a quote here from Hans Kepler, and he made a comment. He's actually a geophysicist from the University of Bayreuth of Germany. And he says here, if the sample diamond is representative of that part of the deep earth, the amount of water there could be would be the same as the mass of all the world's oceans combined. Hmm. So that is significant. It's very interesting to me. So basically, this little tiny grain of ringwoodite had become trapped inside the diamond that preserved it under very high pressures. Basically, this would have just been eventually, think of it as like almost like a big gravel, like um, think of it as a hopper almost, kind of, and eventually gets like shooken up to the top of Earth's surfaces via like volcanic action and um, through this actual type of rock called kimberite which basically erupts from extreme depths Mm -hmm. in volcanic eruptions and things like that. So this is significant because it does change our understanding of the way that water cycles through our planet. Yes. It has extreme implications for the way that we understand tectonic plate activity and volcanoes. And this was noted by Pearson, the researcher. So their analysis actually showed that the sample contained 1.5% water by weight suggesting that this transition zone deep beneath Earth's surface is about 1% water. So again, so it sounds insignificant when I say it that way, but it's actually hugely significant for, for implications for actual future, if we can access this water potentially um, or not. But I love this too. Graham Pearson here, he was from the University of Alberta, part of that report, and he says here that... <laughs> when they were because they basically to determine whether or not there was water in there they have to hit it with different rays of light and things like that and after they were examining it for a while he says here it actually looks as though it's been to hell and back (laughs) which it literally has (laughs) it's been to like the depths of the inner world so it's pretty crazy very cool like you know there's a quite a literal view of this this like tunnel and layer idea and like um, the idea of like portals and things like that when you get into the ancient aliens interpretation interpretation of these findings you know what i mean sure and even when you do look at uh, this was the cbc article and if if you google it they have these like 
diagrams that basically show Earth's surface and like the descending layers, and then yeah. they show the oceans and almost what appears to be tunnels of oceans descending through subduction zones past the upper mantle into this transition zone where there almost appears to be reservoir-like things. So when I said off the top of the bat, don't think of these as huge bodies of water trapped beneath their surface. It might actually be that way. We don't know. Maybe. In my head, though, when I look at that $10 diamond with the ringwoodite in it, I'm thinking like it's probably the composition isn't what we think of when we're like looking at a lake or looking at an ocean. But that's just me in my very layman's terms and, uh, and also that's understanding and also that's like maybe what it would be how it would be interpreted now but over hundreds of millions of years or tens of millions of years potentially like what were the differences and i know you're about to get into the significance of this with usos mm-hmm. with some of the locations of these encounters and stuff because there is a tie-in here yeah there is so we mentioned this in part one, this idea of like perhaps these USOs being tied into subduction zones around the world. And uh, we did mention the Ring of Fire as a significant one. So if we're going off of these like the implications of these 2014 findings, the areas we should be looking for are subduction zones where this transference of water from the surface zone to the transition zone is possible. Right. So this was from the research, right? They said this would have been where they the transfer points would have been able to occur. So what is a subduction zone, you might ask? Like, you know, if you're not really familiar with geology and plate mm-hmm. theory and things like that. But basically, this is from Live Science. They say, quote, a subduction zone is the biggest crash scene on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. These boundaries mark the collision between two of the planet's tectonic plates. The plates are pieces of crust that slowly move across the planet's surface over millions of years. Where two tectonic plates meet as, at a subduction zone, one bends and slides beneath the other, curving down into the mantle. So that's that really hot layer under the crust there. So basically right. it curves down and then goes into that transition zone. So this is most notable at places such as the Ring of Fire that we mentioned. And when you get continental plate and oceanic plate converging, it's always the continental that slides over top because it's a little bit lighter in its uh, density. Okay. Okay. But these zones exist all over the world. And uh, they do occur offshore of Washington. They're around the edge, all over the edge of the Pacific Ocean. So that's the Ring of Fire. Yes. They do occur in Canada. They're in Alaska, Russia, mm-hmm. off the coast of Japan, like we mentioned in part one, and also Indonesia. So it's very interesting because, again, right, this is like going back to how the Earth, like, recycles itself and things like that. and. Mm-hmm. We have a very limited understanding because obviously this takes place over millions and millions of years. We only live to be 100 if we're lucky. (laughs) (laughs) So on a a singular level, it's hard to really grasp what's going on on a bigger scale. Right. But again, right, like we can play off this idea, right? So subduction zones all over the earth are USOs because we have this whole idea of like, are these nuts and bolts crafts? Are they more ephemeral? Are they able to slip through these transference points? Right. You know what I mean? What if they're able to access and use in some way in harness, or perhaps they have their own societies. Yes. If you want to go hollow earth on it. And I think that (laughs) idea too, like that crazy notion Mm -hmm. is, is uh, going back to like how they were phrasing this for like the ancient aliens episode. Mm -hmm. They were Mm -hmm. talking about this 2014 discovery. It was sort of just like, okay, 
they're basically saying like, okay, this changes how we might think about the uh, the origins of the oceans and the history timeline of the Earth. So if there was some sort of like a prehistory, maybe there is a relation to where these things are coming and going mm-hmm. with this with this discovery. And then, like you said, you're talking about subduction zones. Is are these the points where literally like the tunnels are being opened up, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because of the movement of the Earth mm-hmm. and. Going back or to the metaphysically sub- or something, right? Or, I don't and know. then that sort of, if you want to believe this stuff, ties into our couple of abduction cases where we had a description of a tunnel. Mm-hmm. It's not like a lava tube like tunnel unless they jazzed it up and put some lights on the side, right? But it's <laughs> like tunnel nonetheless, though. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really curious. Very cool. For sure. And even just talking about again, like Akulele and the whole Hawaiian volcanic legends of Hawaii, things like that. Yeah. Like. It's all very um, primordial, you know what I mean? And like it's, I don't know. Primordial, I like that word. Mm-hmm. No, that's 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 a good way to describe it. Okay, well, we're kind of winding down here and I really wanted to like dial in some of like our most, our hottest locations, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you will. And I'm glad you mentioned Russia as one of the subduct, where there is like some of these similar subduction zones because of course, part one, we loosely mentioned uh, Lake Baikal and the Silver Swimmers and the the events that go on around there. And it, of course, is another rift lake, extremely deep, largest freshwater body of water in the entire world. And uh, so I wanted to recap that story a little bit because it's it's just so awesome. Go back and listen to our pretty early episode. I think it was episode nine or something, Unknown Siberia, yeah, Secrets of the Depths. Mm-hmm. There have been a few tweaks to the story over the years that we covered way back when, uh, which is, of course, uh, deep underwater, a, a, a group of frogmen, which is the Russian version of the Navy SEALs, doing training exercises and encountering a squad, if you will, of strange humanoid creatures that were described as having almost some sort of like biotech-based equipment. Hmm. Something grown the organically. The silvery suits. The silvery suits, mm-hmm. right? And this was official. This this was reported in official documents of encounters with extraterrestrials. And there's so many other stories that were, you know, that that haven't been released. And and the ones that have definitely corroborate the strangeness that we're talking about in this episode today. For example, there was one that came out in the 1980s where a Russian nuclear sub encountered six disc-shaped objects that were traveling crazy speeds in a formation underwater directly towards a sub. And then when it slowed down, the objects did the exact same and mirrored it. Um, and then when they decided to actually fire at this formation, they rose out of the water and took off. Classic US, USO case, yeah. right? So absolutely bizarre. But coming back to Baikal, when this was declassified, obviously this is slightly different because we have silver suits. We have things actually out of a craft in the water, humanoid form. And I'm very interested in the idea of the suit somehow being like organic, right? Because we're talking about extreme depths and extreme cold. So it's like, what kind of technology do you have to be able to deal with this? Because we can barely go down to these depths right now. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. So this is a really fascinating prospect. Uh, Creating inorganic objects to do what we do is very, very different, right? Like we're using literally like metal submarines to go down to the depths. Mm -hmm. So could these have been actual aliens coming from deep underwater, an entrance point at the bottom of Lake Baikal, you know, seeing these entities, these entities outside of a craft has led a lot of people to speculate that Baikal and other deep water places are 
you know, they're the perfect spot for these bases because they are remote, cold, high pressure, deep water spots. But they were swimming outside of the base, so to speak, mm-hmm. right? So does that make sense that that would be a location of a base? Because we're not just seeing the craft, but we're seeing like the actual entities right in their own backyard, so to speak. Like they're not yeah. they're not traveling to and from in an object. They're 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 there. What they're they right outside like, the front door. What if they're harvesting their algae gardens that day? Possibly. <laughs> you know? Right? That's the joke. But. This is definitely corroborated by other things though, because people all around Lake Baikal see other UFOs. It's definitely a hot spot. And you know, even recently there's been a various different reports around Baikal in the sort of like 2015 onward timeline reporting scene different shapes and sizes of disc-shaped craft, you know, classic UFOs flying and then disappearing uh, into the water. Um, Sometimes disappearing into the horizon, sometimes hovering, sometimes whatever, but it's definitely a hotspot for that, so it makes Mm -hmm. sense. Yes, lots of lights coming from the depths too in that area, correct? Like I remember I'm just trying to think back to, yeah, the episode that we covered and all the strange lights was a big one. The strange lights was a big one. And then Mm -hmm. we also touched on the weird circles on the ice. And I wanted to briefly mention that as well too, because that was a weird sign of potential deep water activity where like there was like the ISS Mm -hmm. and like satellite imagery was showing a really bizarre thinned layer of ice at the south end of the lake in April, which was way too early. Like there was nothing that should have been allowing it to melt. There was no thermal venting that was shallow enough for it to happen. That's what I was going to say. Too deep. the most logical exactly Mm. so but like it is a rift lake exactly but hydrothermal activity had never been observed in that part of the lake you know i will say in defense of that just to to defend the mundane things like that can open and close and especially if this is happening in russia and siberia and imagine there's a lot of industrial drilling and things going on and things that can shift and shake and all that so it could have come and gone it just seemed like it that's totally possible Mm -hmm. but whenever we're talking about geologic things changing like even with fracking or like human intervention it usually takes a little more time and this was like noticed as like very quick it's like all of a sudden it's like whoa that shouldn't be there this was like yeah nasa researchers being like that's weird that shouldn't be there well it just it reminds me of the construction just up the road here where it was a building that they had just built and all of a sudden there's a mysterious gas leak they don't know where it's coming from yeah yeah well, it was like well, my uncle drilling the well and he had methane <laughs> coming right. out of it for months and months well and like, again so it, it could just be that or maybe uh maybe the uh, underwater base they they bust a pipe it's weird it's, though uh, it is weird yeah yeah so that's interesting. So we've got Russia on the list here. Russia's on the list. We've got Antarctica as a very, like, question marky kind of thing. So that's, like, one of the least, obviously, populated continents on the Earth yeah. uh, for humans. And one of the least explorable as far as, like, you know, the under-the-surface kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's a very barren, very harsh landscape, obviously, with ice involved. Yeah. It's very inaccessible for a lot of people unless you have exactly that, like, high-tech drilling operations that are going down. But some people have suggested that there is this massive alien structure underneath the ice of Antarctica. (laughs) And so this uh, was apparently coming from U.S. Navy whistleblowers coming forth claiming that there are bases located beneath the ice that the military doesn't know about but has not declassified. Mm -hmm. So this is very highly strange and unconfirmed, right? This is one that we know the least about. And it's, it's a, we can't really dwell on it too much just because of that, but 
it is interesting when you come back to the idea of, again, some sort of weird alternate version of a hollow earth and, you know, Admiral Byrd's account yeah. when he was flying over, let's just fun to mention, just yeah. to bring up. <laughs> Same area, right? I mean, you have to mention it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So again, right, we're not really, we have basically nothing to go off of other than a few... Um, yeah, there was a really bizarre, I mean, we didn't watch it, I didn't rent it. There was a, a, a documentary, I'm air quoting here, on this exact topic for purchase on Amazon. Yeah, no, it's didn't have great Didn't have great reviews yeah. um, and couldn't find much more background on it. So it's like who these whistleblowers are, you know, it's very yeah. dicey, extremely dicey. Reminds me of the same uh, publisher from that Shag Harbor incident book. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's just one we wanted to mention just because it is kind of fun. Had to mention it. Mm -hmm. We inexplicably ended up back at the Solomon Islands for a little bit of this too. You know, we mentioned the idea of like UFOs being sighted across the islands uh, in our Giants episode. And then I think I th the name came up in part one. Mm -hmm. But we're not talking Giants here. Or or maybe we are. Maybe mm -hmm. we are actually. <laughs> Full circle, man. UFOs do seem to be rising in and out of the ocean at extreme frequency around the Solomon Islands, though, which was frustrating to me, though, because I couldn't find too many, like, USO in terms of, like, submarine encounters with USOs, nor is there any, like, anomalous structures that we can try to tie to. There's no, like, the Malibu-esque type thing. But what they seem to be doing, which is kind of bizarre, is they seem to be entering and exiting the water near World War II wreckages, particular subs and ships, hmm. uh, which which is interesting. I mean, I guess we've seen UFOs over nuclear facilities and different things like that. I'm scratching my head thinking like, hmm, but was on some of these sunken vessels that maybe they're interested in mm -hmm. for whatever reason. But locals say that they see these lights flying over the islands, different shaped craft, including saucer craft, high speeds, and going into and exiting volcanoes. Once again, very much like Pele and the Akualele. Yeah, that's interesting. So they go, they're, they're, they're coming and going from these deep canyons and volcanoes, but then also entering the water surrounding the islands. So they're sort of like, they're going back and forth. And this we sort of talked about in the Giants episode, the cave systems and the tunnel systems and the possible ability to travel underwater in these tunnels. But we weren't talking about UFOs. Mm -hmm. We were talking about ancient humanoid yeah, things relic humans right? or something um, or, mm -hmm. so this is interesting but or we are still tying it back to the same fellow who got us kicked off with the giants right the uh, boy Ron, the mm -hmm. uh, the ex yeah. australian military uh, military helicopter pilot and he saw a crazy amount of ufos in hmm. his uh, publication about living on the solomons there was a uh, and and then even there's tons recently right like in 2010 there was a crash off malita uh that allegedly never got even investigated. It was just like, oh, it was a plane wreckage and the locals were told that there was a salvage like operation. Nothing was ever seen. No wreckage was ever found. No, There was no immediate or obvious search for human survivors. Hmm. It seemed like it was just swept right under the rug, which is very strange. Yeah. Specifically, Boyran, earlier than 2010, much earlier, he described a ton of different interesting things. One, while he was fishing, he said he saw a massive UFO rise out of the ocean and take off into the mountains. <laughs> Various other craft later that week came out of the tall valley that he was living nearby, I suppose, and disappeared into the distance out further out to sea as hmm. if it was going out to a distant destination, like another entrance point further out, I guess. 
And at one point, he even comments that he believes that there might be an entrance to a literal, this was his quote, entrance to an alien base behind a very difficult to reach waterfall that was high up in the cliffs hmm. on one particular island. So I think that's so that's so cool. That's I think like that's really Hollywood interesting, right? There. <laughs> it's like, yeah, an entrance to the tunnel systems that ran between the islands. Could that be could that be one of the entrance points? And is it being used by not just <laughs> ancient giants, but some sort of some sort of USO and UFO type craft and entities? There's been some pretty crazy suggestions, and again, this is very ancient alien, that the giants themselves and a whole bunch of these other kind of strange creatures that are be- believed to exist across the Solomon Islands are in fact like protecting an entrance to a secret alien base, that they are part of this whole story, <laughs> that it's not unrelated. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> <I> <laughs> like, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess it kind of makes sense if you want to believe that subduction zone, these things are using energy of the earth and needing places to travel where they can't be seen. The Solomon Islands kind of have it all. They do. They remind me of like Skull Island or a something. A little bit. Mm-hmm. So what do you what do you what do you make of the idea of the Solomons maybe being it's probably a my really favorite. good location, yeah. Yeah, that's a great, great potential location. And even when we did touch on this originally with the giants of the Solomon Islands, we uh or Guadalcanal, I guess, we did mention these tunnels, right? And yeah. and the locals there is local folklore and things like that that they do exist. And just the very fact that I, I believe these well, the, the whole island chain is obviously a result of volcanic activity, really lends itself to the idea of, uh, uh, yeah, exactly that, of a connection, a deep connection to the underground. And, and yeah. <laughs> perhaps <laughs> perhaps going to that transition zone, who knows? I love, I just, it's just such a fun thought. It makes me feel like a kid inside just to think that there could be something like this so fantastical just, just know, below right? the surface of what we think and know. I just wish... This is my ultimate wish, is if you could apply some type of LIDAR technology Mm. to really start to try and map out these caves and see how deep you can go. Just to see, you know? It reminds me of the Kentucky Mammoth Caves, too, you know? Definitely. There's so many little things. And it's like, I, I... we always play armchair, like, you know, podcaster, researcher, or whatever. But yeah. it's like, man, if only, <laughs> if only we had the funds to go and make some of this happen. On well, the hey, we're planning on getting out to the Solomons, like we loosely mentioned to you guys. So maybe there's going to be some hardcore UFO research angle while we're out yeah. there as well. In my head, I'm like totally picturing like almost a Prometheus type thing where, you know, they had in that movie, they had like that um, fun little like... Uh, uh, bot thing that they sent through and yes. it would like it would map out yep. the whole system for them and it, it eventually illuminated the entire craft which right. was so massive that they couldn't even really tell what it was at first um that's but what, something like that hey or i'm so glad you a mentioned drone or something absolutely and like literally the that image you just put in my head there from prometheus is like kind of what i picture every time i mention alien base yeah like that's what i, th- I picture it's like in the rock mm-hmm. like been there for forever like been there like before the dawn of the dinosaurs and mm-hmm. like whatever else right like just always been there somehow yeah um I, i'm gonna just kind of like go through our, our 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 final theories here and you can kind of maybe just say what you think about them and that's and that's how we're kind of wrapping today's episode up how do you feel about that yeah, let's do it okay so first things first we've got the idea of extreme pressure and could there be some sort of entirely different life form like silicone based life form because of the temperature and the pressures that's developed to an advanced degree in extreme depths 
that we are seeing. We are then seeing their USOs somehow. That's one option. Another option is that like, you know, the depictions we see from ancient civilizations, like I just mentioned on the Solomons, of underwater gods and creatures, even creatures like mermaids, and potential contact with those, and stories with that, could those be the the artistic like memories of some sort of ancient contact with an underwater civilization or some sort of alternate life form uh, that's been on Earth possibly much longer than our evolution and we are still seeing their USOs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, okay. Like, that's... All right, we're getting, getting funky. That's an option. It's an option. The other option is that they're like Shag Harbor. They're literally just, they've set up shop in different places and they aren't originating from there. It's literally just one of many possible different locations across our planet and universe where they show up and have a place to dock mm-hmm. or do whatever you're doing. Yeah, on, on an alternative side note from that too, like Shag Harbor obviously up for debate whether or not this was an intentional like touchdown if this yeah. was some kind of crash landing you know and what we're I mean? waiting for that research that started in 2018 in deep water exploration of the canyons to find some sort of an anomalous massive cavern that is shaped perfectly like a ufo mm-hmm. so stay tuned for that everybody because that could happen there's also the idea of like the atlantis angle like sort of in the same lines of what I was just saying, like prehistory type civilization, yeah. but mm-hmm. something sunken but still somehow survived. It's really hard to make that sound legit because of the movie Aquaman. <laughs> <laughs> but straight up and down, though, like it, it's, for example, there's the Cuba anomaly, the anomalous structure. We're going to do an episode just on that. It's mm-hmm. kind of been brushed. It's been sort of brushed under the rug. It's basically a what looks to be a sunken Atlantean-like city. It was discovered in 2001. It's at such a great depth that it would have ha- it would have taken 50,000 years to slip to that depth. So there's this <laughs> weird timeline of it, getting into some of that like Andrew Collins, Atlantis in the Caribbean type stuff, where it's like, this is clearly some sort of an advanced civilization that was around in the Ice Age, if this is actually a man-made structure and not a geological structure, and it is way too strange to be a geological structure. It's even more strange than Yonaguni, mm-hmm. but it's been kind of brushed under the rug, Okay, as has many other things like that. Right? I'd, I'd like to look into that a little bit further because I'm not familiar with that right? one. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I just wanted to toss it out there just because it's it, you, you don't even need to, but it's just the idea of ancient civilization still clinging Still clinging and maybe as adapted, I guess, kind of like the abyss. That's more just like straight water aliens, weird, whatever. Who knows what's going on there, yeah. (laughs) Silicone-based, same idea, right? Just like different different structure altogether. So what the hell is going on here, people? I think we got a little closer. We got a few more stories. We got a few more ideas of like where you're most likely to run into these things for sure and where they are most commonly coming and going from. I mean, but until we... Well, toss a lasso over one of these and and drag ourselves down with it and see where it's going. It's going to be pretty hard. I don't know if you'd even want to. I don't know how far you'd make it. I don't think so. It's all been lots of fun. This is a lot of conjecture, of course, as always on Into the Portal. Um, But yeah, no, this is fun. Makes me feel like a little kid just to think that there could be something like this out there. But obviously I'm not saying there is. (laughs) I am. I think there is. I think there's something. Alrighty there. There's something down there. There's Mm -hmm. something down there. I, I just, um, I'm agnostic in the sense that obviously there 
are a lot of things that we have yet to discover about our world and that it would be very arrogant to say that we have all the answers. And I think people like that uh, project headed by Noah is going to be very fascinating to keep our eyes on. Yeah. And I, I just, I'm just so intrigued by what we could potentially discover about ourselves, about our past and about the world's past just by going down those avenues, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I really, really, really want to do more research into all these subduction zones and things like that. And You're see, such a... See if we can <laughs> even just do, literally do like the pins on the board with the world map be like, all these cases, they're all correlated, man. <laughs> all the strings everywhere. Do your Charlie Kelly. Exactly. Yeah. You're, you're, a, you're, you're obsessed with geology, so that makes sense. I'm not surprised you said that. I like... I don't know. I like to have some sort of scientific basis to jump from. Of course. Anyways, we want to know what all you guys think because we've had a lot of fun discussing all this. This was never meant to be two parts, but of course, even I think even from where we sit right now, I feel like this could be even more. This could be a whole podcast in itself. it really could. But we just want to know uh, what the heck do you think is going on here? Yeah. Do you have any of your own favorite theories? Do you have any interesting stories that you've heard of related to USOs? I know we had uh, Ricardo mention the Shag Harbor, which we're so grateful for. And so if anyone else has anything that they want to add to the conversation, we're always game. Totally. So you can always hit us up. Yeah. Where where can they find us? Well, I mean, if you don't want to comment in public, you can always send us an email. We love that. Into the portal mailbox at gmail.com come follow us on facebook and you can uh, comment on there and interact with us on there we would love to hear your theories on this so it's into the portal podcast on facebook tweet at us at into the portal one on twitter we love chatting with people on there at into the portal podcast on instagram and we actually do have a tiktok account we haven't posted anything yet no. maybe if a few more of you come and follow us it might be motivating to do that so what's, what's I, I think it's just into the portal podcast i'm pretty sure or Perfect. into the portal if you search into the portal you'll find us on there easy, easy. give us a kick in the butt to actually uh put out some cool TikTok videos. Yeah, because we actually were planning on doing more video. And we, we were planning on... I know. <laughs> I was going to film this. We are going to do this. Like, oh. Mid-recording, I remembered that we were going to do that. So <laughs> that's... You need to write it on the whiteboard here. Yeah, that's not going to happen this week, but hopefully next week we'll get something like that going. Yeah? Yes, very true. Mm-hmm. So yeah, thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in this week and all of our wonderful, amazing Patreon supporters and our producers. We've got Adam Kellums, Stanley Capazario, Nightwing. <laughs> And our brand new brand new producer, uh, Kitsune or Kitsune. I, I really hope one of those is correct. And we are so grateful uh, for you for you all who support us. Like seriously, it's amazing, yeah, and it, it really, really keeps us all going. Um, yeah, it's awesome. So yeah, hit us up on all those things I was just talking about on all the all the socials. And uh, oh, and and for uh, patrons, yeah, stay tuned. We've got a fun one, like uh, Amber mentioned off the top, coming soon. We're heading up to uh, North Scotland, mm-hmm. and that's gonna be really fun. <laughs> so thank you guys all for listening, and until next time on Into the Portal, your gateway to the bizarre.
This podcast is a part of Straight Up Strange Productions. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.